Hey guys, welcome back to this week's episode of The Bazaar, your one-stop shop for everything bizarre. This week, we're going to be covering Ed and Lorraine Warren, so not exactly down the true crime alley, but not too far of a reach. They are self-proclaimed demonologists, so we're getting into some supernatural stuff here, but there were some murders and other crimey occurrences in some of their stories, so I figured it would be a cool little different course of action for this week's episode. Also, sorry this episode's coming out a bit late. It's currently 2.54 p.m. on Sunday, so in theory, this episode should have been up like three hours ago, but it has been a miserable rainy week and I was lacking motivation, but I made myself a smoothie. I'm gonna sit down and actually do it, so here we go. So, if you don't know who Ed and Lorraine Warren are, they are the real-life people that inspired the characters Ed and Lorraine Warren from the Conjuring franchise, the whole universe. Um, They are self-proclaimed demonologists from the 1950s-ish, around that time. Um, They assisted in hundreds of cases and inspired that whole universe. It was kind of heartbreaking to realize that they weren't as awesome as they made it seem in the movies and also far less attractive in real life than Ed Warren in the movies because let's be honest, he is a babe. But they still took part in a lot of really interesting cases that we are going to cover and a lot of the Conjuring universe is based on some sort of truth. Edward Warren Miney was born on September 7th, 1926. His father was a state trooper and a renowned Catholic. When Ed was five years old, he saw his first ghost. The family's cranky landlady had passed away, and Ed later saw her ghost in his closet, and he reported that she was just as cranky dead as alive. Later on, he saw the ghost of his aunt, who was a nun. He expressed to her that, she wanted, that he wanted to become a priest, to which she responded that he should consult them, but do better work than them, which ultimately urged him into the profession that he picked up, which was self-proclaimed demonology. All of these experiences Ed shared with his family, and of course they were, like we said, Catholics. They did not want to believe that Ed was seeing ghosts, and they tried to explain it away with, you know, the way that skeptics do. Um, But ultimately, because he wasn't being believed and he just felt strange inside the house, he ended up finding Solace sitting outside in all weather conditions rather than being in his house. At 12 years old, Ed and his family moved, but at this point he was intrigued by his ability to see and communicate with these otherworldly spirits and he was set that this is what he was going to do. Lorraine was born on January 31st, 1927. She actually grew up just three blocks from Ed and she also went to Catholic school. She discovered her gift at age 12. She had placed a sapling into the ground at a school Earth Day event and she could see a clear vision of the tree growing up into the sky. So, obviously, there's a sapling in the ground. It is not in the sky. It is not grown yet. But when she looked up into the sky, she saw it in its glory, is what she said. The nuns thought that her ability was evil, and they sent her off to a weekend retreat of prayer and silence. But, obviously, that did not work. Lorraine's gifts are actually defined as being clairvoyant, which is an additional sense. So, just like sight, hearing, touch, smell, taste... It's like a sixth sense, which is the supernatural ability to perceive events in the future or beyond normal sensory contact. So basically, she can see beyond the range of normal perception. This may look like intuition, just knowing things somehow, communicating in ways that normal people cannot. 
um, and she's also a light trans medium. So both of these people, both Ed and Lorraine, discovered their gifts at very young ages. Ed and Lorraine met as teenagers on June 23, 1943. Ed worked at a theater that Lorraine was viewing something at. Lorraine said she immediately knew they would spend the rest of their lives together, and he was actually the only guy that she ended up ever dating. They bonded over not only an intense emotional connection, but their love for the paranormal and the other side. They stayed in their home state of Connecticut, where they both were born and later ended up dying, which actually I did not even know that they were dead. Like, I, all I really knew about them, besides from the Conjuring movies, was that they were real people. I didn't know anything about them, and I was under the impression that they were still alive for some reason, so that was a little shocking to find out in my research, but they got married in 1945. Following that, Ed served in the Navy during World War II and then studied at Yale's art school called Perry Art School. They traveled to New England to attempt to profit on Ed's paintings, but they ended up stopping at haunted locations along the way, which Ed used as his source of inspiration. This ended up being that catalyst that pushed them forward into really diving into the paranormal. On January 11th, 1946, Lorraine gave birth to their daughter, Judy, who ended up being their only child. Despite their involvement in the paranormal and going on to become lecturers, authors, and just trainers in this field, they were still members of the Roman Catholic Church. In 1952, the Warrens founded the New England Society for Psychic Research, which was the oldest ghost hunting group in New England. So they really jumped the gun. They started this program in that area, and they were devoted to it. We are going to cover quite a few of the cases that they were involved in out of some 10,000 that Lorraine claims to have been a part of. Um, but besides that, like I said, they were lecturers. They were authors. They made it their mission to inform people of their work and get people on their, on, not on their side, but involved in their work. Their group actually consisted of medical doctors, researchers, police officers, nurses, college students, and other members of their church. They ended up training several demonologists, including one named Dave Considine and their nephew, John Zaffis. These people's entire lives were dedicated to this interest of paranormal and the gifts that they possessed. So it's really interesting to see not only the cases that they covered, but what they actually did with it outside of being in the heat of it. Lorraine also ran a museum called the Warren's Occult Museum in the back of her house, her son-in-law, Tony Spera, helped with this, and the museum basically just displayed haunted objects and artifacts from their cases, including the Annabelle doll that inspired the Annabelle movies, and that actually leads us to the first case we're going to talk about. So in 1968, two roommates, one of which was a nursing student, had a Raggedy Ann doll that they claimed was possessed by the spirit of a girl named Annabelle Higgins. So, how did this come about? The girls noticed that this doll was exhibiting strange behavior, which is a weird sentence because it's a doll, but it was moving on its own, seemed to be looking through them, creepy shit that you would associate with a haunted doll. So, they contacted a psychic who claimed that it was inhabited by the spirit of a girl named Annabelle. The students tried to accept and nurture the doll and just accept that, you know, there was a troubled spirit in it, personally. I would not do that, and I don't think they would try it again because it still had malicious and very, very scary behavior. At this point, they contacted the Warrens, who told them that it was, quote, being manipulated by an inhuman presence. So at this point, the Warrens took the doll and displayed it in their museum, pronouncing it demonically possessed, and they did lock it in a glass box like the movie suggests. 
I'm not sure how many of the events from the movie are taken right from their experience, but the premise of the movie is based on this claim about this doll, and obviously in the movie the doll isn't Raggedy Ann, most likely for copyright reasons. A lot of people have tried debunking this case and also just straight up coming for the museum that the Warrens run. According to Joseph Laycock, an assistant professor of religious studies at Texas State University, most skeptics have dismissed the museum as, quote, full of off-the-shelf Halloween junk, dolls and toys, books you could buy at any bookstore, end quote. He also refers to this legend as a, quote, interesting case study in the relationship between pop culture and paranormal folklore. So what that means is he believes that this case is connecting, like, interesting topics in the media and horror movies with something that has commonly been seen as a scary symbol. So obviously dolls are fucking creepy, we have so many things in the media to prove it, and that is the thing that he's evaluating with this claim. He believes the legend of Annabelle, as well as other movies like Child's Play Dolly Deer and Dolly Dearest, date back to Robert the Doll, who is another haunted doll, probably the first mainstream story of something like that. He also connects this story back to a Twilight Zone episode that came out five years before this Annabelle story with the Warrens. This episode was called Living Doll, and one of the characters in the show was named Annabelle. So he believes that it just kind of stemmed from that, and to be honest, that does make sense, but that could also be a coincidence. I don't know. I am inclined to believe supernatural shit, so I kind of feel like Annabelle might be possessed. Joseph Laycock suggests that demonologists just like to find supernatural in any mundane places. And then we have a science writer named Sharon A. Hill who says that this myth and legend, like others portrayed by the Warrens, is, quote, seemingly been of their own doing. She also says that people have difficulty separating the Warrens from how they were in Hollywood, which I'm guilty of this. I would love to believe that the real Warren couple was exactly like how they were in the films. She also says that while they may have been impressive and remarkable in the movies, real life was not exactly like that. And she says, quote, like real life Ed Warren, real life Annabelle is actually far less impressive. And that one hurt to read because like I said, I love Ed. So Ed and Lorraine's experiences also inspired the Amityville horror films, except it wasn't really their experiences. They were just very, very slightly involved in the investigation. So it is tied back to them in some way. In 1975, a New York couple named George and Kathy Lutz claimed that their house was haunted by a violent, demonic presence that was so intense it drove them out of their house after only 28 days. Like many other cases of this nature, it was claimed to have been a hoax, but obviously we can't prove that or disprove that for sure. So about a year before that, on November 13th, 1974, a Ronald DeFeo Jr. shot and killed six members of his family at this location, which was 112 Ocean Avenue. He was convicted of second-degree murder in November of 1975 and sentenced to six sentences of 25 years of life in prison. He died in custody in March of 2021. So this event likely instigated the claims of haunting at this location. Whether they were true or not, it probably had something to do with it. This haunting became the inspiration for the book series and movie adaptations of Amityville Horror, and it actually appears in the beginning of The Conjuring 2. There's really no significant details of the Warrens' involvement, but they were involved in some way, which is why it is included here. Benjamin Radford says the story was, quote, refuted by eyewitnesses, investigations, and forensic evidence. 
1979, lawyer William Weber said he and Jay Anson, who's the author of Amityville Horror, invented the story, quote, over many bottles of wine. So a lot of people have kind of tried to combat this story, including the author of the book. Another smaller case we have with the Warrens being involved is the Snedker house. So in 1986, Warren, the Warrens arrived to this location and proclaimed that the funeral former home, which was now just a regular house, was infested with demons. Horror, horror author Ray Garten said that the family of the house gave varying accounts and all had a lot of problems with alcohol and drugs, so he did not believe that the shit was going on there was actually paranormal. The same author later said of Lorraine, quote, if she told me the sun would come up tomorrow morning, I'd get a second opinion. So uh, we have another diss of the couple, which makes me very sad, but clearly they were not as reputable in real life as they were in their movies. We also have the Smurl family. So two PA residents, Jack and Jan Janet Smurl, reported that their home was disturbed by supernatural beings, including sounds, smells, and apparitions, between 1974 and 1989. Of course, the Warrens got involved and claimed that their home was occupied by four spirits and one demon that reportedly sexually assaulted the family on multiple occasions. Other possibly paranormal occurrences included loud noises, a bad odor, throwing the dog into the wall, mattresses that shook, and daughters being pushed down a flight of stairs, as well as, like I said, physical and sexual assault. So, of course, when the Warrens were brought in, Ed said the demon was very powerful and that it shook mirrors and furniture after they played religious music and prayed in an attempt to get it to leave. Ed said he felt a drop in temperature and saw a dark mass form and that the demon left a message on the mirror saying, get out. The Warrens said they had a number of audio tapes of knocking and rapping from within the house. Like with all of their cases, shit ton of criticism. Eventually, the Smurls said things went back to normal after intense prayers. In 1987, they claimed that they still heard knocking and saw shadows, but that the more violent instances had ceased. Later, Deborah Owens moved in and told reporters that she never encountered anything supernatural while living there. So I don't know if these demons just hated the Smurl family or if there was nothing going on. Then we have Union Cemetery, which was, like, Ed's guilty pleasure. Like, he was a slut for Union Cemetery stories. So he actually wrote a book on this cemetery where he claimed that a white lady ghost haunts. He claims that he captured her essence on film. It is located near Stepneary Road in Connecticut and dates back to the 1700s, and it's apparently one of the most haunted cemeteries in the U.S., so I can see why Ed would like it. Apparently, this white lady wears a white nightgown or wedding dress and just kind of vibes and floats around the cemetery, and Ed loves that shit. Now we have a slightly bigger story based off of the Enfield Poltergeist. So this case inspired The Conjuring 2, but the Warrens were not nearly as involved in real life as they were in the movies. So one of the slightly more detailed cases that the Warrens covered was the Enfield Poltergeist, and this actually was the inspiration for The Conjuring 2, although, like the other cases, they were not as involved in it as the movies made it seem. So this case took place between 1977 and 1979 at 284 Green Street in London, England. This event involved two sisters, Margaret, age 13, and Janet, aged 11. So in August of 1977, Peggy Hodgson, who was the single mother of these two girls, called the police to her rental home, saying she had witnessed furniture moving and that half of her children had heard knocking sounds on the walls. So those two kids were obviously Margaret and Janet, so she had two other kids that did not experience this at this time. 
When the police got there, one saw a chair wobble and slide, but could not determine the cause of the movement. Later on, there were claims of disembodied voices, loud noises, thrown toys, overturned chairs, and children that levitated. Over the next year and a half, over 30 people, including neighbors, psychic researchers, and journalists, witnessed heavy furniture moving, objects being thrown around, and again, daughters levitating. They also heard and recorded knocking noises and a gruff voice. The claims ultimately ended in 1979. In this case, the 11-year-old daughter Janet was said to have inhabited the personality of an old man named Bill, and I think a few other voices. So, two members of the Society for Psychical Research reported curious whistling and barking noises coming from Janet's general direction. She was also spotted bending spoons and attempting to bend an iron bar. She banged a broom handle on the ceiling and hid the tape recorder. So one of Janet's voices, known as Bill, who appeared in The Conjuring 2, displayed a habit of changing topics like Janet did, which was one of the reasons for the skepticism about Janet's possession. Um, and this personality also spoke of menstruation a lot, which, again, I don't think this old gruff man named Bill would be doing that. The two members of the Society for Psychical Research that visited believed that the haunting was genuine, but also believed that the children were exaggerating it for the fame. The opinions on this case were really spread out. A lot of people believed it, others were uncertain and thought it was faked or staged, and others just completely labeled it as a hoax. According to several sources, the Warrens showed up once, just randomly, just appeared and were turned away from the case, but they attribute it to demonic possession. So they were not really involved in this case at all. They just kind of pulled up, said they were demons, and then were kicked out. So this next case that we're going to do is the last one for the Warrens in this episode and also the most detailed out of the ones that we covered today. And it was the inspiration for the new Conjuring movie, The Devil Made Me Do It. This case gets a bit confusing, so I'm just going to sum it up before we dive into the details. So it starts when an 11-year-old David Glatzel, who is the brother-in-law of our main target, Arnie Johnson, experienced a lot of ominous occurrences, which were ultimately chalked up to demonic possession. The Warrens were called, and they petitioned priests to perform an exorcism. They succeeded. The priests performed the exorcism, and after several days, supposedly, a demon fled the child's body and inhabited Arnie. At least that's what is believed to have happened. And then a few months later, Arnie ended up killing his landlord at a party in a fit of anger and was tried and tried to plead not guilty by reason of demonic possession. So that's the short story, but we're going to dive into the big details of it. I just wanted to get that out there because when I was researching for this, I had to backtrack so many times because I just kept getting confused. So these events began when Arnie and his fiance Debbie Glatzel, who was the sister of David, started cleaning up the rental property that they had just started renting. David said that an old man appeared before him, pushing him and scaring him. The couple at the time thought that David was using it as an excuse to avoid cleaning the property, and David then said that an old man would harm them if they moved in. He also said this man appeared as a demonic beast who spoke in Latin and threatened to steal his soul. And to be honest, if my little brother or nephew was saying this, I would kind of think it was a lie too. And I believe in paranormal shit, but that, you know, that sounds a little childish. The family heard strange noises coming from the attic, but only David saw the old man. So after this day, David began experiencing night terrors, exhibiting strange behavior, and having random scratches and bruises that he couldn't attribute to anything. 
The family then called a Catholic priest who blessed the house. The family decided that the rental property was evil and they were no longer going to rent it. In the meantime, David's vision got increasingly worse even in the daytime. So 12 days after the original incident, the family decided it was time to call on the Warrens, who were considered professionals in this area. When the Warrens got there, the family told them that they had seen David being beaten and choked by invisible hands, which left red marks on his neck. They also said that he had been growling, hissing, speaking in otherworldly voices, and reciting passages from either the Bible or Paradise Lost. They said that each night a family member would stay awake with him as he went through spasms and convulsions. They concluded that there were multiple possessions, leading to three exorcisms. Lorraine says that not only did a black mist appear next to David, indicating a bad presence, that he levitated, stopped breathing, and demonstrated precognition, which is the foreknowledge of an event, specifically a paranormal one. So he actually kind of predicted the manslaughter that Arnie was later going to be accused of. In October of 1980, the Warrens contacted the police to warn them of the increasing dangerous nature present in the boy. So, apparently, Arnie coerced one of the demons that was within David to possess him while in the exorcism. So, Arnie was present while he was being exorcised and apparently told the demon, like, leave him, possess me, get out of the boy. After that, Arnie returned to the old rental property, to the well that was said to house the demon, even though the Warrens told him, like, you know, don't do that. While he was there, he made eye contact with the demon and supposedly became possessed. This was his last encounter with the demon while fully lucid. After this, David's condition continued to worsen, and the couple moved to a completely new location, where Arnie then began exhibiting odd behavior that was similar to David's initial behavior. Debbie started becoming suspicious that Arnie was possessed because he fell into a trance-like state, growled, hallucinated, and then had no memory of it later on. On February 16, 1981, Arnie called in sick and went to Debbie's job with his sister Wanda and Debbie's younger cousin. Bono, who was the couple's landlord and also Debbie's boss at a dog kennel, brought the group to lunch and he drank heavily. Afterwards, they returned to the kennel, and Debbie took the girls to get pizza, but came back quickly as she sensed that something was going to happen. When they got back, Bono was even heavily, even more heavily intoxicated and very agitated. Debbie demanded that everyone leave the room, but Bono stayed and seized Mary, the nine-year-old cousin, and wouldn't let go. Arnie headed back and ordered him to release her. Mary ran for the car, and Debbie attempted to defuse the situation by standing between them. Wanda attempted to pull Arnie away, but he growled like an animal, drew a five-inch pocket knife, and stabbed Bono over and over again. A few hours later, Bono died, suffering four or five tremendous wounds on his chest, stretching from his stomach to the base of his heart. Arnie was found two miles away and held at Bridgeport Correctional Center. This became the first unlawful killing in the history of Brookfield, Connecticut. The next day, Lorraine Warren went to the police and informed them that Arnie was possessed. After this, a media blitz occurred, obviously, which was fueled by the Warrens, who promised lectures, books, and movies about the case. Lawyers were being called about the demon murder trial. Arnie's lawyer met with lawyers involved in similar cases and planned to bring in exorcism specialists as well as the priests who oversaw David's exorcism. So his lawyer was on top of shit, consulting people. However, the other two lawyers that he connected with, their trials never went to court. Like, they never went through with it. The trial began on October 28, 1981, where Arnie submitted a plea of not guilty by reason of demonic possession. 
The presiding judge rejected it, stating that no defense could exist due to a lack of evidence and it would be, quote, irrelative and unscientific. The defense implied that Johnson acted in self-defense, so the jury could not even consider demonic possession as a factor at all. After deliberating for 15 hours over the course of three days, Arnie was convicted of first-degree manslaughter on November 24, 1981. He was sentenced to 10 to 20 years, but only served five of those years. Another one of Debbie's brothers, named Carl, claimed that the entire possession story was a hoax made up by the Warrens to exploit the family and the brother's mental illness. He then said that he was painted as the villain because he did not believe in the supernatural claims. He claimed that the Warrens said it would make millions and help him get out of jail. Carl wrote his own book after losing friends, business, and schooling as a result of rejecting the paranormal claims. The Warrens and the involved priests continued to defend their work with the family. There was a book published by an author in support of the possessions who had their entire book signed off on by the family before publishing it, but later on David's father claimed that he never told the author that his son was possessed, but he signed off on it, so, you know, little controversy there. Arnie Johnson and his eventual wife, Debbie, completely support the Warrens' claims and completely agree that this entire thing occurred because of a demonic possession. The couple stated that Debbie's family is only objecting the story to gain money. So obviously there's a lot of controversy with that one too, and like the judge said, we really never will be able to prove what went on in that case, but he was released, him and Debbie married, and the other side of the family is kind of pressed about the whole thing, but it's over. So those were a lot of the big cases that we just discussed there. Other than this, like we said, uh, Lorraine ran a museum for some of their artifacts with her son-in-law. They trained other demonologists as well as lectured, wrote books, and just spread overall awareness about their field. There were a lot of skeptics and people are still debunking the cases that went on, but they loved what they did. They did it passionately and somehow they made a living out of it, so good for them. Ed Warren died on August 23, 2006, and Lorraine Warren died on April 18, 2019. As far as I know, their daughter Judy is still alive. It really took me by surprise that they were dead. I guess I didn't really think they, I don't know, I didn't really think about it, but if I had had to guess, I would have thought they were alive, but that made me sad. I guess what we can gather from this is that movie Ed and Lorraine are much more dreamy. So yeah, that about sums up Ed and Lorraine Warren. I know this is a bit off focus of what we usually talk about, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, let me know if you guys want more stuff like this or if you want to stick to the more traditional true crime route. I am cool with either. So thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of The Bazaar, your one-stop shop for everything bizarre. I'll see you guys next week.